This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate as Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household would be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. About a month ago, we started a new series, What Does It Mean to Be a Christian? And we said that there's a lot about, we've been talking a lot about what the Christian life looks like, but what is it really? What does it mean to really be a Christian? What are the implications of the Christian life? And today we're looking at the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Abram, or Abraham. And Abram is one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament throughout the whole Bible, since all three of the major world religions claim Abram to be their father. And so, who was was Abraham? Abram, he was called out of his social and economic and cultural and religious context God appeared to him and promised that through him that he would, enti- he would redeem the entire world through one of his descendants. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to get out, leave your country. In those days, to leave your land, to leave your country was certain death. Because in ancient times, your people, your family, your context, that was your life. It was before the days of the internet and any technology. So to leave your land 
uh, was to leave your life. He said, leave. To where? In Genesis chapter 12 and 13, Abraham arrives to Canaan, and God says, this is your land. Stay in this land beyond any more appealing consequences, any more appealing options. Abraham says, here? Here? For how long? Later in Genesis chapter 17, to Abram, he says, well, Abram says, you know, you've promised me a son. Now, Abram's around 100 years old. He's 99 years old. Sarah's probably about 90 years old. God says, I want you to wait. Abram says, how long? How long? In Genesis chapter 22, he finally has a son. God says, now I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Why? All these questions, lots of questions, but in each case, Abram passes the threshold. In each case, Abram triumphs. In each case, God leads Abram to live a huge life, a big life. The circumstances did not master Abram. So the question remains, to live a Christian life, to be a Christian, how do you live a big life? And the Bible's answer is faith. In each case, Abram believed. Now what does that mean? Abram trusted the promise. Abram had assurance. How do you live a big life? How do you trust God? This text today is one of the most wonderful passages in the entire Bible. And we're going to learn three things. In the first eight verses, we're going to learn about Abram's doubts. In the second half of the text, verses 9 to the end of the text, God's assurance to Abram. So you have Abram's doubts, God's assurance, and then lastly, the application, the implications that this has for us. First, we're going to look at Abram's doubts. Just one chapter prior, Abram's nephew Lot was rescued from tribal chieftains. It was a violent time, very violent time in that era and in that area. And there were many reasons to be afraid. And it's in this context, in chapter 15, God brings an assurance to Abram. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am your shield because lots of danger in the area, uh, tribal chieftains, violence, He says, I am your shield. And whenever they came, they plundered those lands. He says, I am your reward. Do not be afraid. Now, there are two problems with living a big life. And we see them both in this text. God says, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram responds in verse 2. He says, I know you're sure, but how can I know for sure? How do I know that you are my shield? Abram's got doubts. Abram's got anxieties. Abram's got questions. The main question here is what? How do I know if you will pull through for me? How do I know for sure? How do I hook into this assurance? How do I apply this assurance into my life? That's the first problem. That's the first problem that we have in living a big life. Now, in verses 4 to 6, God reminds Abram of the covenant. He says, I will give you a son. God reminds Abram of the covenant that he had made with him. What is a covenant? A covenant is a life-binding, love-binding agreement. God is saying, I'm putting my name on the line. I'm putting my life on the line for this promise. And in verse 6, Abram says, Abram, uh, God, the, the word says, Abram believed God. And it, it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this is very realistic because Abram still has doubts. But this time around, he's got different doubts. In verse 7, God reminds Abram, I'm going to give you this land. And here we have the second big problem with living a big life. God reminds Abram. And he says in verse 8, 
God reminds Abram of the promise. And Abram in verse 8, he says this. This time around, he says, how do I know that I can pull through? How do I know if I can do this? How do I anchor into this promise? The first question, how do I know if you'll pull through for me? The second question, how do I know if I can pull through for you? Two very big problems. Verse 1 to 5, I'm not sure if you can pull through for me. In verses 7 to 8, I'm not sure if I can pull through for you. But inherent in this is what? God hears. God is open to Abram's doubts. God listens to Abram's doubts. He's reasoning with Abram. He's reasoning Abram with Abram and he gives him his word and he's reasoning with us and he gives us his word. It's through his word he assures and comforts Abram and it's through his word that he can assure and comfort us. God comes to Abram and he says, I am the Lord and I promise this. And and Abram essentially says, oh, I'm doubting you. I'm in great doubt. I have lots of doubts. Abram's got the audacity to question the sovereign God of the universe, the sovereign God of the world. And he says, I'm doubting you, and I'm questioning you, and I'm not sure if I can trust this. And God could have said, how dare you doubt? How dare you think this way? Who are you? But he doesn't. Instead, he teaches Abram. What does that teach us? God is so much more faithful to us than we think. He hears our doubts. He hears our fears. He hears our skepticism, and what he does is he challenges us to work out our doubts, to work out our fears, to work out our skepticism. On one hand, that what that means is we have tremendous freedom to doubt. You can doubt. You can come as you are. You can doubt as you are. On the other hand, God says, I will never leave you alone in your doubts. I'm going to challenge you in your doubts. I'm going to challenge you to work out your doubts. Come as you are, but you will not stay as you are. I will not let you stay as you are. Today... We have people who are unable to open up about their doubts and questions. In our day and age, it's considered sophisticated to be skeptical. It's considered sophisticated to have doubts and questions. But we have people in our world, especially in the church, who are afraid to open up about their doubts and questions. So on one hand, you have traditional cultures who look down on the doubters, who look down on the skeptics. And what that does is that leads to greater skepticism, greater doubts, On the other hand, you have a secular culture that raises doubters and skeptics as a virtue. And so as a result, you have greater skeptics, greater amounts of doubters, right? Both create more doubters, both create greater skepticism, but here God says, it is safe to doubt. But I won't leave you alone in them. I will not leave you alone in your doubts. Remember Thomas? Thomas in the New Testament, doubting Thomas, Jesus Christ resurrects from the dead. Thomas, he wasn't present when Jesus first appeared. And so what he says is, unless I first, unless I see him, unless I touch him, that's us. We're doubters. We're skeptics. When Jesus appears, he doesn't smite Thomas. Jesus finally appears in front of Thomas. What does he say? Come and see. Touch me. That's what he does. He reasons. He reasons. He's gentle. Jesus Christ addresses Thomas' greatest doubts, his greatest skepticism. There's this gentleness and assurance and comfort that comes with his word, with his word. But then he says, stop doubting and believe. He challenges us. He brings the greatest and strongest assurance in himself. We need to work it out. That's the first point. Abram's doubts. 
Now, the second point here is God's assurance. What does God do? And it's remarkable what he does. How does God answer? Abram says, I don't really know about you, God. And he said, then he says, I don't really know about me. God says in verse 9, get these animals, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to lay them out. And when he says, get these animals, Abram instantly knew what God was doing. Why? Because Abram was part of a merchant culture. And because of this culture, because of his own career, so to speak, he understood that he was entering into a covenant. And this is what we call, this is really common in a, in a covenant ratification ceremony. What is that? Today, in our literate culture, in our literate world, when you make a contract, when you make a lease, uh, when you buy a car, you write these things down in the form of a written series of statements And those statements are arranged in such a way that you're saying, this is how we will hold ourselves accountable to this contract. Both parties, the lessee and the lessor, right, the seller and the buyer, they come to an accord, and what they come to is written out in the form of an agreement. Both parties are assigned in front of witnesses. Any, Any modern covenant is handled in this way. When you enter into a marriage, The couples sign a document in the presence of witnesses. And what they're saying is, I'm signing it, I'm sealing it in a life-binding, love-binding contract. What you're saying is, my life is on the line. My name is on the line in front of witnesses. What you're saying is, I promise to be faithful. Otherwise, there will be huge, huge consequences in my life. And they say this, they make these vows before the public. But in pre-literate cultures, in that oral culture... You didn't write these things down and sign it. There was no place to write anything down and sign. What you did was you spoke them and you acted out the contract. George Mendenhall, he's a a former professor at the University of Michigan. He was an expert in Near Eastern ancient contracts. He wrote a very important book. And the book is The Law and Covenant in Israel and in the Ancient Near East. And uh, what he saw, Mendenhall, what he specialized in was observing these ancient Near Eastern contracts. He observed them. He studied them. And he saw that the language of the Bible in any type of covenantal uh, uh, narrative, he noticed that the language that existed in the Bible was very similar, almost exact, to these ancient Near Eastern contracts. And so if you look at passages like Genesis 15, this contract, this, this relationship, this covenantal binding between God and Abraham, he saw that the language that was used here is very similar to the language used between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 20 when, when God was handing down the Ten Commandments. Again, you see a contract. There's contractual language that was binding the two parties, God and Moses, God and his people, God and Abraham, God and his people. Contractual language. They spoke the contract. They acted out the consequences of breaking the covenant. They acted out the consequences of the curse that would fall on you if you broke the covenant. In other words, the way that you made the contract back then, like Abraham, what you would do is you would take these animals and you would split these animals from head to toe in half and you would arrange them. You would form an aisle with these halves. And each party involved in the contract would walk through the aisle, walk down that aisle, and they would recite the stipulations and the consequences. 
They would recite the blessings of the contract and the, the consequences of breaking the contract because the contract implies if you do not live up to these terms, may I become like these animals that have been halved, that have been cut off, that have been cut apart, torn asunder. May I be cut off like that. May I be torn asunder like these animals. May I become cut to pieces. That was covenantal language. Abraham knew what he was doing. Usually it was the inferior member in the contract, in that covenantal relationship that would walk through the aisle and he would make all these promises. So Abram thought that what God was asking him to do was to set up this contract, arrange these animals in half, create this aisle so that Abram would have to walk through the pieces. Because this is, really, this is quintessentially how we deal with people who wrong us. When somebody owes us something, the kind of contract, the kind of, covenant, the kind of relationship that we have, they owe some sort of a debt to us. And what we make them do is we make them make promises to us. Because if they break the promises going forward, what do we do? We say, may you be torn asunder. May you be cut off. May you be punished. May you suffer the consequences of breaking these contracts or this contract. That's how we view people who've wronged us. And that's how we often view how God views us in our relationship to him. We believe that it's all about us, the weaker, the inferior, making promises because we owe God a sin debt. In our sin, we think that we owe a debt to God and it, because we do. And in owing that debt, we believe that we need to walk through the aisle. We need to make the promises we need to make good. And so we have to make these promises. And what we're saying is if I fail to live up to these promises, the consequences are what? Guilt shame, we feel cut off. We feel as if our relationship with God completely cut off. And so, in a sense, we're living in hell. What is hell? Hell is being completely separate from God. And so we feel as we've been torn asunder. And we live with the guilt. We live with the shame. That's how we deal with God. When we deal with somebody else, we say, oh, you're weak. You failed. I want you to promise to never do it again. And if you do, you will experience my wrath. When we look at God, we say, I'm weak. I failed. I will never do it again. And if I do, I'm experiencing your wrath. And if that's what God intended in this text, it would never have helped Abram. It would never have helped him. It wouldn't have helped him at all because Abram knew he couldn't pull through. It was one of the big things. It was one of the big questions. How do I know if I can pull through? Abram knew he couldn't pull through. This was precisely one of Abram's primary doubts. But that's not what God intends. That's not what God is saying here. What's happening here? It's one of the most amazing things. It should change our view of God because it shaped Abram's view of God. In verse 12, the sun sets, and Abram falls into a deep sleep. It's not a normal sleep. It's a deep sleep. And the text says a dreadful darkness, literally a thick terror in the Hebrew, a thick terror came over Abram. In other words, along with the physical darkness came a spiritual darkness. A terror came upon Abram. Imagine this thick smoke to the point where you can't breathe, envelops you throws you to the ground. Why this terror? Abram's struggling with God. Abram's struggling with God, struggling to trust God. He's, got, he's struggling with himself. He's struggling with doubt. And if you've ever experienced that kind of doubt where you just can't trust, it's choking you. 
And Abram's alone, and, and God, in that aloneness, in his struggle, in his struggle with God, God comes to Abram and makes this promise. God comes to Abram and establishes this covenant with Abram. Abram's struggling with the presence of God, and God comes to him. Abram's struggling, struggling with, with trusting God, and God assures him. Abram is struggling, struggling with, with uh, what it means to, just spiritually, what it means to deal with God, the presence of God. And yet God comes to him in his aloneness, promises him, assures him with his reality, the heavy significance of God, the weight of God. And then what you see here in verse 17, the smoking fire pot, this blazing torch passes through the pieces Commentators say that this is a billowing smoke and a blazing lightning. It's a torch that blazes through like lightning. Now think about this. When you, when you see lightning, it's just a flash. It's just an instant. But the commentators here who observe this say that it's really a lightning that strikes, holds its pose, and blazes all the way through. That's a blazing torch. That's what we're seeing here. It's this continuous flash that holds its form, passing through the pieces. And so we know that what's passing through these pieces is not smoke, it's not lightning. These are tokens. These are emblems of God's immediate physical glory presence. It's the reality of God, the actual presence of God, what we call theophany, the smoke and the blaze, the same thing that appeared in, in, in Mount Sinai when God appears before Moses. Abram knew here that God is not just reiterating his promise. It's not, he's not just reiterating his words. He's making an oath. And when he walked through the pieces, he's saying, Abram, I am putting my life, my reputation, my name, my character on the line because if I don't live up to my promise, if I don't live up to my oath, May I become like these animals. May I be cut off. May I be torn apart. May I be cut to pieces. May I be halved and torn asunder like these animals. May I be cut off in the land of the living. May I ex experience complete separation from life, all that is good. May I experience hell and the wrath. This is absolutely remarkable. Do you see this? absolutely remarkable on several levels one in ancient contracts the king you would never see the king undignify himself and walk through the contracts were intended for the tribute the contracts were intended for the lesser king the co contracts favored the strong the contracts favored the in the superior king it was always the inferior king that walked through abram's the inferior abram is the weaker abram's the one with doubts Abram is the one that owes, but it's God who walks through. This is God. This is king. This is the sovereign ruler of the universe. This is the eternal God. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the gentleness of God. Look at the patience of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the assuring compassion of God. Inherently, what God is actually saying is this, Abram, if I don't deliver on my promises, may my immortality become mortality. May my, may my infiniteness become finite. May my immutability become mutable, become changeable. May I be cut off. May I be torn asunder. 
may I die. Do you see that? This is the only thing, only this can answer the first problem with living a big life. How do I know that God is here? How do I know that God will pull through? God says, I am willing to put my own life on the line to assure you. Do you hear that? This is why we can trust him. Trust in God. Trust in his word. That's going to answer the first question. But that's not it. God passes through the pieces and he makes this oath in verse 17. Then in verse 18, the covenant, it's complete. Notice, Abram never walks through the pieces. He never walks through himself. And this addresses the second major problem with living a big life. Abram says, how do I know if I can pull through? On one hand, God says, if you don't pull through, you are cursed. You are cut off. But because only God walks in between the pieces, he's absorbing all the risk. What he's saying is, Abram, Abram knows, I can't pull through. That's why he's got doubts. Abram says, God, I know I can't pull through. So how, do, how does this work? That's really his question. God says, I will take on all the risk. God's saying, even if you can't pull through, I will bless you anyway. I will bless you. In other words, your faithfulness has nothing to do with the blessing. It's all by sheer grace. It's all by grace, by the grace of God, what we call unconditional love. Now, Abram's probably perplexed here. He's been given full assurance. How is that possible? God can't just ignore my unfaithfulness to him, right? This is Abram thinking, well, if you're walking through the pieces and the covenant's been established, how is this possible? Because you can't just possibly, if you are God, you can't just possibly ignore my unfaithfulness to you. Otherwise, you would stop being just. You were not a just God. God is a just God. Abram had to have been perplexed. But we don't have to be perplexed because we know the reason. Centuries later, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus Christ is on the cross and another darkness envelops the land. Another dark, deep terror envelops Christ. What's happening? The real terror is coming on Jesus. Abram is suffering the thick terror of the presence of God, but the real terror is on Christ, is on Jesus. The real reality, the true heavy weight of the wrath of God is falling on Christ. And, and Ab- Abram experiences the terror of God's presence, and it became a comfort to us because on the cross, Jesus Christ experiences the terror of God's absence. The thick terror, of the weightiness of the wrath of God, the thick terror of the absence of God. Jesus is struggling with the weight of the wrath of God. He's struggling on the cross. He's choking on the cross. Jesus Christ, the greater Abram, perfectly obeys the covenant. Abram says, I don't know if I can pull through. Jesus Christ, he pulls through. Look at the righteousness of God. Look at the obedience of Christ. The true obedience of Jesus on the cross, and yet on the cross, he's choking. On the cross, he's suffering. On the cross, he's struggling. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he mean? He's saying, my immortality has become mortal. My infiniteness has become finite. Although I have obeyed perfectly, although I've delivered on every promise, although I've fulfilled every stipulation of the covenant, my body and my soul have been torn asunder. 
I've been torn apart. See the blood of Christ on the cross. He says, I've been torn to pieces. I'm being torn apart. My heart, my soul are being ripped apart because my God has abandoned me. My, my God has abandoned me. I'm literally experiencing the weight of the wrath of God right now. I'm literally experienced. What is hell? Hell is separation from God, complete, total separation from the presence of God. Jesus Christ on the cross says, you have forsaken me. I've been torn asunder. You've abandoned me. My soul is being ripped apart. Why? Because I'm experiencing the wrath of God, hell on the cross. Complete separation. Isaiah chapter 53 says, he was cut off from the land of the living. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus says, it is finished. I have fulfilled it. I have paid the price. The transaction has been made so that the justice of God will be satisfied on one hand while the love and the mercy of God will be satisfied on the other. And so on the cross, you have the justice of God in full. The weight of God, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus with the love of God meeting and embracing and kissing on the cross as his love and his mercy flow and are poured out on his people. Do you see that? Look at the love of God. Look at the justice of God. Look at the righteousness of God in Jesus. Look at the justice of God in Jesus on the cross. Look at the love of God in Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ was overwhelmed by the justice of God so that we could be overwhelmed by the love and the mercy of God. Isn't he trustworthy? Isn't God trustworthy? Isn't he faithful? He said, I am putting my life on the line. And then he himself was torn asunder so that you can live a big life. So that you can live a life trusting God so that the presence of God could be in your life. You can trust Jesus. Don't just trust in Jesus. You can trust his words. That's why we read scripture. That's why we study scripture. Go to his word. Trust his word. What are the implications? Very quickly. First, every other religion says, do this and this and this. Follow these rules and you will be saved. But see, then you're walking through the pieces. If you live like that, even today, if you're in the church today thinking, well, I got to do this and I got to do this. I want to come back to the Lord. So I got to make all these, I got to do all these things. I got to do all the things that Christians do. You still don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You are still walking through the pieces. And if, you, if you're living like that, it will be the source of tremendous brokenness, continued shame, unending guilt in your life because you will never be able to deliver. You will never be able to deliver on God's promise, your promises to the Lord. You will fail. It's also going to be the source of lots of jealousy because all you're going to see in those moments are people who succeed, people who are actually living light, living right. And as a result, it's going to make you more guilty, more shameful. Do you see that? Christianity speaks to God and only God making a way through Jesus and only Jesus. And only Jesus can say it is finished because the love of God and the justice of God through Jesus Christ on the cross in his death and resurrection, he says it is finished. 
That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's not good news. What is the gospel? The gospel means good news. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good news. If you are the one who has to walk through the pieces, it's not good news because you will always fail. You will never live up. You will never be able to fulfill the covenant stipulations that God, to have a relationship with God on your own. Thank God for Jesus Christ who not only walked through, who not only journeyed, but was torn asunder for our sake. That's why we know that God will pull through. He has. And that's why we know that even if we don't pull through, Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sins. Next, all of our sins are the result of us not trusting in the promise of God. It resulted in lots of brokenness for Abraham. And if we continue to live in our sins, it will result in lots of brokenness for us. Look at the promises. Are you bitter? Trust in the love of God. Are you worried? Are you anxious? Trust in the wisdom of God and obey. Are you feeling guilty? Trust. Do you really trust in the grace of God? Go to the word and obey. Are you angry? Trust in the justice of God and obey. Are you unforgiving? Trust in the mercy of God and obey. Are you greedy? Trust in the provision of God and obey. Third, you can go to God. You can go to the Lord with your doubts. It's okay to doubt, but as he does with Abram here, you have to work it out. Abram, to the point of choking in the thick terror of the presence of God, was able to work it out. God came to him. Do you see God coming to you through his word and speaking his promise to you? You just have to say, I think I believe. I think I believe. Help my unbelief. It's the most honest prayer you can pray. Help me in my unbelief. Lastly, in our doubt, there's assurance. In your word of encouragement, in Hebrews chapter 13 and on, really, uh, chapter 6, verse 13 and on, when God made a promise to Abram, he confirmed that promise with an oath. We have this oath as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. You know what it means to have an anchor? No matter the circumstance, no matter the ways, no matter the circumstances, no matter the storm, no matter how fearful and scary life can be, we are anchored to his promise. We, are, we can be anchored to his promise. It's for our souls, firm and secure. Trust him. Don't just trust in Jesus. Trust his word. Trust Jesus. Read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Study the Bible. You know what community group is? We talk about how community groups are really where we root in the fellowship and in the mission of our church. The reason why is because that's where we look at his word. It's through his word. There's only so much you're going to receive here. We're here to worship God as a community here together. But as we do that together and as we engage in community, there we wrestle. There we struggle. In community community groups, you can be honest. That's why in community groups, genuine community comes through the honesty in our brokenness, the honesty of our faithlessness, the honesty of our confessions as we come and engage with one another and hear God's word and let it speak to us the assurance and the comfort and the love and the gentleness of God over and over and over 
and over again until it roots deeper and deeper into our hearts, into our souls, so that an oak of righteousness can be born. Do you see that? Even if it's a seed, do you see that? Let this hope be an anchor for your souls, firm and secure. Trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ who passed through and braved every suffering to bring us close to him, that we could have a firm and secure relationship with God in him, that we can experience the blessing of our relationship, our covenant relationship with God. Do you trust that? Let's pray.